Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the first ever Atlantic Wellness Experience podcast. We are going to do a series this year uh, with the hope of providing some additional information uh, in education in the health and wellness arena. Uh, as everybody at Atlantic knows, health and wellness has been a big part of the last few years for our organization. We have a huge commitment to it. Uh, we understand that access to good information, education can be difficult, uh, especially in today's world where there's just so much of it out there. What do you believe? Um, so uh, these series are going to be an effort for us to begin to bring you guys information that we believe um, is valid from credible sources and people that we have access to uh, right here in our backyard. So I'm really excited about our first episode. Um, we have Sarah Gale of Triad Care. Sarah Gale is a registered dietitian. She is a South Carolina licensed certified dietitian nutritionist and a certified LEAP therapist who offers nutritional counseling and consulting services in Charleston, South Carolina. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. In your experience, um, can, can you lower your body fat, your BMI with exercise alone or is how you know you, you hear all these different things about you know exercise versus diet diet versus exercise w where do you where do you fall i mean can it be one or the other does it need to be both is one more important than the other um give us your perspective on that as a dietitian right well i don't have the exact numbers but from my personal experience as a dietitian counseling people over the years i would estimate that diet is about 80 to 90 percent 80 to 90 percent. I do because you can exercise your heart out all day but if you're eating poorly nothing's gonna nothing's gonna change. You may gain more muscle by the exercise but diet changes are key in my opinion. I think that's becoming more prevalent. I mean I heard the other day that you can't out exercise a bad diet mm -hmm. you know and I Absolutely. think that's true but I think um for a lot of folks, you know, the exercise piece, I think, is the most approachable. You know, it's, it's easy to put on the Fitbit and start to walk and you start feeling better and all those things. But again, the diet piece, I think, is where, to your point, I mean, that's 85 to 90 percent of optimizing your health. So, um, you know, for people who want to do that, what are the first few things they should look to either add to their diet or eliminate from for their diet? Starting your day what are you having for breakfast? It should be high protein, high fiber, with some healthy fat. So an example could be some eggs, some whole grain toast, and avocado. If you're just having a bowl of cereal, whether it's sugar cereal or even just plain Cheerios, that's not gonna sustain you. It doesn't have enough protein or fat. You really want to have that balance and have enough to, to keep you full. Um, so that's starting with breakfast. Well, let me ask you a question about that, because I think for most of my life, I thought a whole grain cereal was a great way to start the day, that that was a healthy deal. But as I've learned more, you know, when you're putting all those carbohydrates in your body early in the morning, you're spiking your insulin right off the bat, and which, is, which sort of puts you on an insulin roller coaster for the rest of the day, which makes you hungry all day long. So what you're saying is really focus on high-quality proteins and high-quality fats in the morning, which will satiate you but also keep you from having hunger pains throughout the day? Is that, is that, is that the uh, answer? Absolutely. When I have a client that's telling me they eat a bowl of oatmeal, even if it's the healthiest oatmeal, and they're starving two hours later, 
I say, okay, just try this. Try a couple eggs, avocado, some nitrate-free bacon, mm-hmm. let's say. Bacon. Okay. I love that, I love that bacon's healthy Nitrate-free, you know, and turkey bacon if mm. you if you want to try that. But they tell me I'm not hungry. I wasn't hungry for four or five hours, and that's, that's what should happen. <laughs> and is that because of an insulin response is because those mm-hmm. foods don't tend to spike your insulin as much? Is right. that what's going yeah. on? Yeah, so carbohydrates, and most of the employees here should know what carbohydrates are, you know, by now, but... I'll, you know, remind bread, you, it's pasta, the bread, pasta, crackers, cereals, yeah. yeah, granola bars. Um, a lot of people just grab a bar and they're out the door. That's still carbohydrates. That starts the whole insulin, glucose, roller coaster, so to speak, um, right off the bat in the morning. So you're fasting all night. You should be, right? You're sleeping. And if the first thing you put in your mouth in the morning is pretty much going to determine your your insulin level, you know, throughout the day, whether you're craving carbohydrates or not. So definitely having enough protein and, and healthy fat in the morning. What about fruit? Because I think a lot of, I mean, I know for me, fruit was a big question mark for a long time. Forever in a day, I thought that eating a banana and blueberries and an apple for breakfast was about the healthiest thing I can do. And I think there are a lot of nutrients in fruit, but there's also a lot of sugar in fruit. So what's the balance with fruit? Again, yes, Fruit is very nutritious. Berries are going to be lower in sugar and higher in fiber. So if you're going to make a smoothie, you can include berries. But again, it can't just be fruit. You want to make sure you're having, you know, the protein and the fat. And then if you're going to have a little fruit. So, for example, if you're having Greek yogurt, plain Greek yogurt, not flavored, because that's going to be too much sugar, you could add some berries to that and maybe some nuts for your healthy fat. But just... Eating fruit, yeah, it is. it does turn into sugar, and diabetics need to be especially conscious of how much fruit they're having. Sure, sure. And you mentioned yogurt, and I think that's another breakfast food that a lot of people associate with a healthy breakfast, probiotics and everything else in it. But I guess um, when you look on the shelves at any grocery store, there's a variety of different kinds. And what would you say, check the sugar content? Is that the first thing to do before you buy yogurt? First thing, yeah. Well, two things that I tell people. Well, first of all, the the yogurt aisle keeps getting bigger and bigger by the week. There used to be just Yo Play and Dannon. And (laughs) like back in the day, it used to just be plain yogurt, which is really what it should be. So you need to go be a detective in the yogurt aisle. You need to go find the plain yogurt first, first and foremost. Then, yes, check the ingredients. So it needs to have those live, active cultures in the ingredients. So those weird, funny, you know, scientific-looking words, that those are actually names of the good bacteria that you're wanting to get in your gut. I used to know some of those, but I can't pronounce <laughs> yeah, any of them. We won't go there. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, and then, you know, some people say, well, I can't eat plain yogurt. It's, you know, it's not sweet enough. Okay, so then what I say is go take a teaspoon of of jam just a teaspoon and mix it in there or a little bit of honey some berries and that way you're controlling the amount of sugar and that's going to be way less than what you'd be getting in the flavored yogurt so yes check the ingredients and then go ahead and check the sugar grams okay should be less than i would say six grams a plain yogurt will have you know six to eight grams depending on the serving size that's just because those are the natural milk sugars that comes naturally with the yogurt, but any added sugar, we'll put it back on the shelf. Put it back on the shelf. Okay. So best case scenario, 
If you like eggs, stick with eggs. Avocados, great source of fat, great way to start your day. Um, and then, of course, low-sugar yogurts and things like that are okay as well. And then I guess um, whole grains like toast and things like that, as long as they're sprouted and whatever else, is, is an okay choice as, as an add-on to a breakfast, right? Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of what everyone's trying to do is get good nourishment in their body and not feel hungry all day long. Um, so lunch, of course, is a big meal for most people. I mean, it's a time to take a you know an hour break or a 30-minute break from your job and sit down and enjoy lunch. And I think most people all look forward to that. Um, it can become a sort of a celebration of like, hey, I'm going to go have a cheeseburger because this is my 30 minutes off. And it's not always terrible to have a cheeseburger. I'm not saying that. But from your perspective, when you're looking at lunch, and then we can talk about dinner as well, just kind of give, you know, water intake, portion size, you know, proteins, fats, starches, you know, carbohydrates, all those macros that you need to pay attention to um, and how to balance all that depending on what your goals are. Okay. (laughs) The floor is yours. Yeah. And in in three hours, we'll go to the next subject. (laughs) Well, we're just starting. (laughs) Um, You mentioned water, so let's take care of that. Um, I'm drinking water, by the way. Me too. 64 ounces is a good starting place, although they say half your body weight in ounces for water. Now, that could vary if you're severely overweight you know that might be too much water actually actually so 64 ounces per day start with that as a goal some people say i can't drink water i I don't like the taste and this and that there's things you can do there's um dehydrated lemon packets you can add to water that um, are not they don't have chemicals or anything like that but you just sometimes i tell people to keep a glass of water on their nightstand in the morning and you can't leave your bedroom until you've had that 16 ounces of water and sometimes that just helps start the cycle of you know drinking water Um, as far as lunch so we talked about breakfast lunch if possible i tell people to bring your lunch Um, eating out is uh, correlates to to weight gain it just does there's just a lot of um salt fat like the bad fats trans fats especially in those fast food restaurants the portion sizes are sometimes really really big in restaurants so if you can meal prep you know prepare your foods have something you can bring a lot of people bring leftovers from dinner for lunch Uh, i tell people you can make a big batch of chicken salad egg salad and have that in little containers with some non-starchy vegetables and i guess that's something you could even do like on a sunday evening like make a big batch of tuna salad or chicken salad and you could eat that all week long so if i'm ever making something i'm doubling tripling quadrupling whatever i'm making i'm using the freezer um getting frozen vegetables is a good way those are already cut up for you it takes a couple minutes to prepare but bringing your lunch to work. So again, back in the day. Let me ask you about frozen vegetables, because sometimes I think people, me included, associate the stuff in the frozen section as less healthy than the stuff sitting out in, you know, out for you just to pick up. Mm -hmm. But um, at least, you know, I've got young kids. Sometimes the easiest thing to do is those frozen peas and lima beans and corn. And, you know, it's not very expensive and you just throw it in hot water. Is that a healthy option for people when they're in a hurry? Oh, yeah. I use mostly frozen vegetables. So when they freeze the vegetables, they're they're frozen shortly after they're picked. 
from the farms, and that kind of preserves their nutrients. Not to say that the fresh produce isn't good. You would want to find that, um, find whatever's in season. But sometimes that has been on a truck or a ship for weeks and weeks and weeks, and it's been sitting out there, and it loses its nutritional value day by day. Um, even cans, people that, you know, I talk to people that are maybe on a budget, and canned foods seem to be the only, you know, foods they can afford. That can be okay. You want to get canned um, in water, and you want to rinse off the salt. But when you're looking at your plate going with vegetables, you want to have your plate be half your plate be non-starchy vegetables. So non-starchy, meaning, so starchy vegetables would be your peas and your corn and your potatoes. Peas or starches. I, I don't peas. know if I would have known that. Yes. Yes. Uh, a lot of people are like, I eat my pea, my vegetables. I eat peas and corn and <laughs> I'm gaining weight. Peas and corn are healthy, but they count more in the starch category. So the non-starchy have more water and fiber. So those are most of your other vegetables, like your celery, carrots, broccoli, cauliflower, artichokes, asparagus. I could go on forever and ever. Brussels sprouts? Yeah. One of my favorites. Yeah, so half your plate, non-starchy vegetables, a quarter of it your protein, so your meat, your chicken, fish, and then the other quarter of your plate, your starch. So that could be your potato, your pasta, your rice. And if you look at your plate and it's balanced like that, that's going to help you. A lot of people, and I agree, don't like counting calories, and it's just not fun to do that. But it's an easy thing to do is to just look at your plate. Is it balanced? And the other thing, look at your plate and see how big your plate is. So <laughs> plates have gotten bigger over the years. So have we, right? And so, so I tell people, go in your cabinet and get the salad plates, if you have like dinner plates and salad plates, it should be about eight to nine inches in diameter. Okay. So that will help with your portions. If if you do sit down for dinner and you're just starving, I mean, is there such a thing as eating too much protein? I mean, if I wanted to eat three chicken breasts because I'm just hungry, I mean, I'm assuming that's a better choice than eating three baked potatoes. <laughs> well, mm. uh, yes, there is such a thing as too much protein. Okay. Um, your kidneys can only handle so much protein, and I could get into the calculations and do the math, but that's that's not fun. But yeah, you probably yeah you want to keep it balanced. balanced. So yeah, both would be not such a good idea. Okay, <laughs> that was not the answer I was looking for. <laughs> Were you no. hoping to eat a lot of uh, chicken? <laughs> well, or you know, steak or whatever, pork. Uh, I mean, yeah. I'd, yeah, any of that stuff. Yeah, um, I think what you could do, what would be a better, if you're wanting to not have the potatoes, if that was maybe the concern is make sure you're having the protein and the chi- the um, vegetables. Sure, sure. So yeah. green leafy vegetables by far are the thing that you can eat the most of. Nutrition dense, low glycemic index, all that stuff. Yeah, or any of those non-starchy vegetables. Okay. When I give people the non-starchy vegetable list, I just say, do you have three on there that you that you like? And if there's just three, then stock up on those three. But the more variety, the better, of course. But colorful. Make it colorful. Okay. What about yeah. beans? I mean, I've heard mm-hmm. some people say beans are really good for you, high protein. And then I've also heard the opposite. I mean, you know, that you shouldn't eat too many beans. Where do you fall off on pinto beans and black beans and black-eyed peas and all that kind of stuff? 
Beans have nutritional value. They have fiber and protein, but they're still considered carbohydrates. Okay. So you have to eat them in moderation, just like you would a potato, rice, pasta, peas, corn. Okay. <laughs> so a big old bowl of black beans, you can't substitute for uh, your broccoli and Brussels sprouts. No. Okay. So yeah. So some people, their go-to dish is rice and beans. That's carbs and carbs. So... Yeah, and I, I mean, I think for most of my life, I thought of rice and beans as a healthy meal, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, okay, interesting. Um, as far as uh, as proteins, are there certain proteins that you think are better than others? Or you shouldn't, you know, you should only eat red meat once a week or never? Or is it, you know, personal preference? Or um, how do you feel about pork, chicken, fish? I think a variety is good. You don't want to overdo it in any one category. If possible, you'd want to get grass-fed meat. That's going to have your omega-3s. That just means the cows have been eating grass, which is what they were designed to do. But a lot of times now with the mass production of meat, the cows are being fed grains. And they're not getting those healthy fats that the grass has in it and then in turn giving it to us as nutrition. So if grass-fed meat is, you find that it's a little more expensive, then maybe you need to make that a once a week or a once in a while type of meal. And so what I'm saying is put, the, put it in your budget to get the quality food if you can. Sure. Uh, back in the day, it was, you know, maybe on Sundays they would have their, their roast. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people nowadays are eating a cheeseburger every single day sure or two so if i would be one of those people if i didn't know how unhealthy that was i could (laughs) eat a cheeseburger every single day of my life um but so i and i think that is one of the things people and and me included have been concerned about you see grass-fed or grass-finished beef and it's usually a lot more expensive or can be um but i If I understand what you're saying is the reason that you want to pay a little bit more for that if you can on occasion is because the difference is the nutritional value of the meat because of what those cows are eating is pretty significant. Absolutely. So you're either spending your money up front on healthier food or you're going to be paying for it later with medication, doctor visits, hospitalization costs. So... So it's actually a bargain on some level. It's kind of better to do it now. That way you don't have to deal with being in the hospital and all these chronic diseases. So sure, that's my viewpoint, at least. Okay. Um, I have one more question about food in general. Um, is there anything else on your list that you wanted to cover that I haven't asked, if that's at all possible? Well, we meant a couple of things. We mentioned n- trying to avoid processed foods, so staying away from things that are in packages, but really looking at the labels if you are getting anything with in a package. So um, ideally five or fewer ingredients usually can correlate with a healthier, less processed product. Um, The ingredients are actually listed from greatest to least. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you're looking at cereal and you see sugar as the second ingredient and sugar or sugar as the third ingredient and you're comparing two cereals, the, the further the sugar down is down the list, 
the less sugar it has. That's that's what my mom used to do when we were kids. There there was not a nutrition facts label. It was just sure. ingredients. So she would take us to the store and say, you can pick any sh- cereal you want as long as sugar is the third ingredient or lower. And that pretty much left us with great re- nuts, <laughs> <laughs> regular Cheerios, Rice Krispies, and like Kicks, right. <laughs> if you remember that. I like but, Kicks. Um, but even now, cereal, as we talked about, isn't even the best choice i should have been having eggs sure sure (laughs) well and you know and there's so many other names for sugar these days whatever dextrose and corn syrup and you know Mm -hmm. so you you really almost got to educate yourself on all the different types of sugars um, because they can be sneaky right um it is sugar when you're looking at processed and packaged foods um probably the number one thing to pay attention to i mean if you're looking on the you know Hey, if if there's high sugar content, I probably should put this back. Nowadays, I would say yes. Okay. Because what happened during the 90s when everything went fat-free, and we all kind of got fat, not all of us, but there was a big explosion in obesity. Obesity, yeah. Well, what happened was they were taking the fat out of foods, and they were putting sugar. And sugar makes you fat. Uh, Yeah, because you can't, you're putting all the sugar in your body. Your body has to do something with it, and it stores it as fat. That's the easiest way to store fat is to overdo it on the sugar. Since since you touched on fat, I mean, I think for most of this generation, our lives, fat was a dirty word. Um, What is your feeling on fat? Healthy fat, saturated, non-healthy fat. Is fat important for your diet? Should it be considered, if I'm overweight, I should not eat fat? Or is fat a, a, a critical part of a, of a good diet? And, and, and where, where do you come off on that? We definitely need fat. Okay. Healthy fats. Awesome. So good. what are those? Well, olive oil, avocado okay. oil, avocados, fatty fish, nuts, seeds, can go on and on now the unhealthy fats are those trans fats those hydrogenated oils now i would say canola oil is probably not a good fat that's over in the those are typically found in processed packaged foods so again when you're looking at the ingredients if you see the word hydrogenated partially hydrogenated those are trans fats and what that means is the scientists in the lab, they want to make food shelf stable because that brings profit to the stores if their stuff can stay on the shelf a long time. So what the scientists figured out is that they take a healthy oil like an olive oil or any kind of natural oil and they inject hydrogen into it, which is why you hear hydrogenated oil. Okay. It actually twists the molecule and it creates a trans version of the molecule, and it, it's called a trans fat. So when you eat those, your body does not know what to do with that, that twisted molecule. It's never seen it. It's never heard of it. It's not natural. And it causes a serious amount of inflammation in your body. So. Not good. <laughs> that's your little science lesson. No, that's great. I, <laughs> I, I I knew you know partially hydrogenated oil wasn't good for you, but I did not understand why that that clears a lot of it up. And you see a lot of that in stuff like potato chips, right? Yeah, you can. And uh, even on the box, on the front of the boxes or the bags, companies are allowed to say no trans fats if they are less than I think two percent 
trans fats. So you still need to check the ingredients. Don't never pay attention to the front of a package. I tell people always go to the back because the ingredients, they have to be honest. So peanut butter is a, is I send people home and I say, go check your peanut butter. That's a very um, common item to have the hydrogenated oils. Otherwise you're going to get, you want to pick the peanut butter that you'll see with the oil on top and the peanut butter on the bottom and people don't want to deal with mixing that but what you do is you flip that jar over let the oil come to the the top or the bottom of the jar and it helps the mixing process but definitely better on your body and i i I want to touch uh, you bring up all kinds of stuff that i'm interested in so i'm going to keep touching on this but peanuts aren't actually nuts is that correct peanuts are more of a legume and don't have the nutritional value that things like macadamia nuts or almonds, um, other types of true nuts. Is that, a, is that an accurate statement? Peanuts do still have nutritional value, but yes, they're considered a legume, and all the nuts are going to have different benefits. But if you're a them. peanut butter person, mm-hmm. should you consider almond butter, for instance? Is that, is that a better alternative? It. You could try it. Um, could possibly be better but if you're getting natural peanut butter and it's what it's good for is it's got the fat and the protein and if it's natural it can help satiate you and it could be okay okay some people do try and they just go back to peanut butter so if you're really really a peanut butter fan at least get the good kind but if you want to change to a different variety go for it okay good <laughs> good i mean we, there's a lot of peanut butter at my house we got young kids so it's <laughs> a, always always a popular deal and i guess uh, peanut butter is another one with sugar content you got to really pay attention to right you should it should just say peanuts and salt on the ingredients peanuts and salt but i guarantee you 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 will find they say peanut salt um high fructose corn syrup hydrogenated oil nope just peanuts and salt that's it okay all right good <laughs> all right um one last question, and uh, then we'll move on. Um, dessert. Mm. Dessert's a big deal. It's a big deal at my house. I think it's a big deal for most people. Um, how do you feel about, hey, we finished our meal. Um, I, you know, we're going to have, we got young kids. You know, sometimes you have to bribe kids to eat their dinner by having dessert. Is If you're going to recommend two or three desserts that are okay to eat, um, I mean, we try to do dark chocolate. I mean, is that, you know, is that a good alternative? Are there others that you like or just desserts the devil? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't grow up having dessert after, after dinner, although I know you a must lot of, not have grown up in the South. I didn't grow up in a very fun <laughs> house. It doesn't sound like Cheerios and no dessert. Um, but if you can start to make dessert and not an everyday thing, I think that's a good idea. A, a phrase you can use is, and this is Michael Pollan's little phrase, is treat treats as treats. Right. So think about that for a second. Treat, um, treats, as treat treats as treats. So in other words, maybe put on the calendar Friday night, we're going out for ice cream. And then go out and enjoy it and get real ice cream. But... That way, it's something they can look forward to. Now, if you, I understand you need something sweet from time to time, and dark chocolate is what I recommend. It needs to be 72% or higher to be technically dark chocolate. So look for that on the label. 72% 
cacao. Is yeah. Because that, that's yeah. the right way to pronounce I that. So. I called it cacoa forever. I think, yeah. I think cacao it's cacao. Or, okay. Yeah. So that, so like the, um, if it's just says dark chocolate and it doesn't state the percentage, it's, it's not, typically not real dark chocolate. Okay. And it is hard to overeat or overdo it on dark chocolate. Oh, yeah. So it's a I, good thing. Yeah, you're, you're not going to eat three bars yeah. of dark chocolate. Uh, I've, I've learned that. Um, okay, let's talk a little bit about uh, cholesterol. Um, okay. What are the risks of having high cholesterol? And if you have high or borderline levels, how do you get into the desirable range? Um, and I will follow that up. I'm going to go ahead and ask the second question, which is, what is the difference between HDL and LDL? And what do each one of them mean to, or, and tell you about your health? So the HDL is the good cholesterol, they call it. The high-density lipoprotein is what it stands for. And that's the cholesterol in your body that kind of gathers up all the bad cholesterol and ex- helps excrete it from the body. You want that number to be, for women, it's over 50 and I believe for men, it's over 45. You want that number. The LDL is the, quote, lousy cholesterol, and that you don't want too much of that. The goal would be to be less than 100. And what does it mean? So we need cholesterol, first of all. We don't yeah, want to cholesterol's be... cholesterol's not, not in itself bad, Yeah, right? we don't want to just be, like, afraid of cholesterol completely. We need a certain level. Um, it lines our cell membranes. We need it for our bodies, our brains, our hormones, everything. You know, like, that needs a certain level of cholesterol. So a very low cholesterol is not necessarily good. Yes, so if I get my cholesterol checked and I am at whatever, 250, 300. Um, probably the first thing I would assume you'd say is go see a doctor. Yes. Yeah, so the, definitely. And then that total number, like you said, 200, 300, you'd want to see how that breaks down first sure. of all. And yeah, definitely go see a doctor, have it double checked, make sure you're fasting for that, that blood draw as well. And, but as far as diet, which is kind of where I fall in, um, would be just eating enough of those healthy fats Those are that we talked about. Those are going to help raise your HDL. But then also having enough fiber is what's going to help keep that LDL and keep those other numbers within a healthy range. So fiber, that's 25 grams is the recommendation per day for women and 35 for men. On average, the average American is getting about 10 to 15 per day. Okay. Uh, so we're not typically getting enough fiber. So the healthy cholesterol, HDL, the best way to impact that is through healthy fats. I'm not sure um, most people would realize that. So that would mean things like eating salmon or take, mm-hmm. taking a fish oil pill every day. Is that is that a good plan? I mean, to, to supplement with, with fish oil if you're not getting a lot of fish in your diet or eating more, you know, macadamia nuts or almonds, things like that. Yeah, I'm, the fish oil can't hurt. I've seen studies showing that it helps, studies showing that it didn't really make a difference. But if you are taking a fish oil supplement, make sure you're taking it with food. Okay. Food with fat. That's going to help the absorption. A lot of people are kind of just taking it at night before they go to bed and it's just not doing anything. It would be more of just a waste of money, in my opinion. But yeah, I, it can't hurt okay. to take that. Yes, avocados, your healthy oils, fatty fish. Nuts and seeds, all the good fats we talked about would help your HDL. Okay. 
Now, the other thing is I want to mention that high cholesterol can sometimes be genetic. And there's like nothing someone can do about it from a dietary standpoint. So whether, you know, it's genetic or not, you need to see your doctor and see the best way you can manage that. Okay. We hear a lot um, out there in the world today about diabetes um, and high blood sugar and the impact of, you know, undiagnosed diabetes. And even within the own, our own community here at Atlantic, um, you know, there's been a lot of stories of people who have, through some of this work, discovered that, hey, I was pre-diabetic and I didn't even realize it. Um, and the risks of walking around with high blood sugar. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, blood glucose levels, uh, when you get one tested, what that number means, and then also A1C. Uh, a, lot of, um, a lot of biometric screenings, um, ours included actually, did not uh, include A1C, but we as a, as a leadership group decided that, hey, A1C is a really important test, and um, uh, I'll let you describe what that test is and why it is important, but um, blood sugar... Um, as it relates to health and obesity and um, diabetes, I think is probably as important as anything we'll talk about today. So I'd like to hear uh, more from you about uh, your thoughts on that. Right. So blood sugar and A1C or hemoglobin A1C, they're connected, but they're different. So when you get your blood sugar taken, which is what we do at the screening, you're fasting, hopefully you're fasting, That the blood sugar reading gives you the number like your blood sugar reading at that very moment versus A1C is an average reading of your blood sugar of how it's been over the past two to three months. So in other words, when you prick your finger and you take your blood sugar right there and then, that's how, how much sugar is floating around in your blood at that moment. But so with the A1C, so your red blood cells, they live for about three months. They're floating around in your bloodstream, and if you have a consistent amount of high blood sugar, it's going to stick to those blood cells, and it's going to accumulate. So what the A1C does is it looks at those red blood cells and sees how much sugar has been stuck on those cells over time. So it gives us a better idea of how well your blood sugar has been managed over a period of two to three months. Okay, okay. So... Just because you walked in one day and got a, a finger prick and your blood sugar was, say, 85, it doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have high blood sugar. You just might not have had high blood sugar that morning. Your A1C could still be a 6.2 or 6.4 or 6.5, which would mean you'd be in the pre-diabetic range. So would your would it be your opinion that the A1C number is the more important number to pay attention to uh, as it relates to diabetes at least? So typically how we look at it is we first take your fasting glucose level, and that should be between 80 and 100. Typically, if you're somebody that has chronic high blood sugar or you're borderline prediabetes, your fasting blood glucose is going to be over 100. We're very close to 100. So then that gives us a clue, okay, we better follow up with an A1C. You can test your A1C if you're below 100 fasting glucose, but it typically correlates to a good A1C percentage sure. as well. So it's kind of a red flag if your fasting blood glucose is high, which it shouldn't be because you're fasting. It just means you still have leftover sugar floating around in your bloodstream. And so the A1C um, 
is more of like a follow-up test. And that those results are given in percentages. So the ranges 4 to 5.6 is normal. 5.7 to 6.4 is pre-diabetes. And over, over that would be diabetes. Okay. So yeah. in general terms, just for round numbers, anything over a 6 is worth paying attention to. Would you, would you say that's a true statement? Absolutely. Okay. So say I've done my biometric screening at Atlantic and my number comes in at a 6.4, 6.5. Um, what are the short-term and long-term risks uh, of that situation, and, and especially if I don't do anything about it? Right. If, if you're that high, first of all, go see your doctor because you need to start managing this condition as soon as possible. But as far as what are the short-term, long-term effects of high blood sugar, diabetes, the largest, the biggest, you know, organ that's affected is your kidneys, first and foremost. And your large blood vessels, your small blood vessels, uncontrolled diabetes can lead to stroke. It can lead to losing extremities, going blind. You really want to get that under control. There's also lots of things that you can do just in your normal daily life to bring your A1C down, to, to lower your blood sugar. Um, and uh, the real obvious one to me is, is eat less sugar. But, you know, are there other things you can do? Well, definitely, if you've met with a dietitian and you're given a certain amount of carbohydrates you're allowed to have at each meal is really learning how to count your carbohydrates and sticking to that is key as far as nutrition. We talked about carbohydrates that can come in a lot of different forms. Something as healthy as brown rice, even compared to candy. Those are both in the carbohydrate category, so managing your carbohydrates is key. I think that would come as a surprise to most people that Skittles and rice are in the same category. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, carb, carb, they you got to count your carbs. You got to count your carbs. Um, and there, you know, I know counting calories, counting carbs and, and macronutrients, uh, you know, macronutrients being protein, fat, and carbohydrates can be a little daunting for people. But there are a lot of resources out there. Uh, the one that I've used is MyFitnessPal, and it actually makes it really easy. I mean, you can literally take a picture of a piece of food, and it will tell you what it is. You can take a uh, scan the barcode on the back of something, but we're not eating out of boxes and bags anymore. But <laughs> if you happen to need to scan a barcode, yeah. um, it'll give you all the nutrients. And you can upload uh, recipes, and it'll do it for you. So um, I know in my experience, the uh, MyFitnessPal app has actually been kind of fun, um, at least for a short term, and, and it at least teach you where the, where the macros are. But do you like those type apps, or do you utilize those for your clients? So I have some clients that love them. They put in everything they eat every single day, and they just live by that. And some people, it's very daunting. So what I recommend is at least do it for three days, at least just to get a good snapshot of what your day looks like. And then kind of check in with it every every few days, if you if you're not someone that wants to do it every single day, and just to to get a good gauge. But over time, you're going to be able to recognize how much how many carbs are in a, in an apple and what size apple you're looking at. And you should be very a, a well controlled diabetic that's been doing this for a while is very they don't really even need those those apps. They can look at a plate and tell you how many carbs are on that plate. Overall, the big lesson is that A1C over a six 
do not ignore that. Do not you know, go go see your doctor immediately. Start you know start taking um, precautions and changing lifestyle because the uh, the risks of walking around with diabetes undiagnosed or even pre-diabetes undiagnosed are pretty significant. Is that correct? Yes, and I would even say five point seven to be on the safe side. Could you that could be pre-diabetes? And yes, definitely go see a doctor, but there's, there's diet, exercise. I want to make sure to mention losing weight is a huge thing to do, especially if it's pre-diabetes. You have a chance to stop this or reverse it. And so losing weight, exercise, eating well. So all of the things we, we've been talking about. All the things we've been talking about. <laughs> okay, and speaking of eating, we'll move into the next category, and um, I think we're, we're, getting, we're getting close here. Um, there are a lot of uh, ways to eat out there. Uh, there's a lot of new diets. Uh, there's a lot of just information floating around. Um, you know, the, the, the ones you hear the most these days are the keto diet or the paleo diet, the Mediterranean diet, a plant-based diet. Um, you hear a lot about intermittent fasting. Um, I don't. I'm not asking you to give us a full, you know, <laughs> overview of each one of those diets. But um, can you give us sort of a, a short overview of each one of those diets and uh, what you like about them and um, how to decide if one of those diets or you know, the way I like to look at it is, is, is really their lifestyles more than diets. You know, I think, uh, I think a lot of people say, oh, a diet, I got to go on a diet. In my experience, at least most of these is choosing to eat this way for life. Do you agree with right. that? Yes, I definitely agree with that. Okay, good. All right. So keto, we'll start with that. Keto, which is short for ketogenic. So that diet was actually originally designed for epileptic children and it was shown to it's a high fat diet shown to slow down or stop seizures but what people have found is that you know non-epileptic just the average person that would go on this high fat diet they was they would find that they'd be losing weight on this as well is where it kind of started to gain popularity now having said that there there are a lot of people out there that are saying i'm on keto keto this you know and everything's keto right that you're sure. hearing and it's not they're not really doing it so true keto is fat is about 60 to 80 percent of your diet it's it's very high in fat um, a lot of people are doing higher protein and fat it's really specific to fat and your carbohydrate is around five to ten percent intake which is very low which can be around 20 grams per day which is equivalent to about a like a piece and a half of bread and that's it for the whole day so it, it puts your body in a state of ketosis which i won't get too much into that but it's a high fat diet hopefully healthy fats, you know, that people are, are doing. Um, and the idea is, is if you're not having a lot of carbohydrates, your body goes into your storage, into your fat, and uses your fat for fuel, and it produces ketones in your body, which you would have to then monitor in your urine. And it's it's a pretty serious state that you're putting your body in. So that's keto. Paleo, which some people get those to confuse paleo or the caveman diet some people call it is that diet is more kind of how they used to eat before agriculture started so they eliminate grains and um, certain fats 
So that diet consists mostly of meats and fish, eggs, nuts and seeds, some oils, vegetables, but not corn because that would be a grain. Sure. So kind of how they ate thousands of years ago would be paleo. That can be more higher in protein. That doesn't specify, paleo doesn't specify protein versus fat. It's just more food category. More of a, a grain-free type. Yeah, pretty much. Some people eliminate dairy, some allow dairy. It just depends what what you want to keep in that in that scope for the paleo. I've also heard that diet described as as, prim, as the primal diet, which I think is pretty much the same. And mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's some. What I've read um, is that human beings have existed on this planet in the form we are today for 200,000 years, and modern farming wasn't introduced until 10,000 years ago. So for 190,000 of the 200,000, we were hunters and gatherers, you know, Mm -hmm. and so from a biological and evolutionary perspective, the theory goes that we're really designed to eat plants and animals and nuts and seeds, not not processed grains. And then in today's world, you know, in the last hundred years, there's just so much processed food and so much sugar and where our primal ancestors had access to almost no sugar except for fruits maybe in the spring and summer. So is that really the, hey, you're going back to how your body has eaten for most of human existence? And that the theory is that's a healthier way to eat because that's how we're biologically programmed. Yes, that's the theory, definitely. And people find that they feel better, lose weight on this diet. And part of that could be they're just not having donuts and (laughs) all these processed foods. That just goes with avoid processed food. So whatever, if it takes you to to say I'm doing paleo and I'm not having any grains to stay away from most processed foods, then that might work for you. But it, it depends. Do you draw a line between what I would call traditional grains and ancient grains? I mean, are grains like quinoa, which you hear a lot about, is that a healthier grain in some respects, or is it all the same? I don't think it's all the same. I think all grains offer different um, benefits and nutrition. The more refined grains I would stay away from, for example, it's pretty obvious, but white bread. Sure. That's been stripped of its bran, of its fiber, and then they go and fortify it with vitamins and minerals and call it healthy and say it's got all it's got all the nutrients, but it's way too processed. So yeah, if you if you can find bread that looks where you can see the seeds or it's sprouted grain or you know, that's probably a better better option. Okay, cool. <laughs> um the Mediterranean diet. Um does that mean just eating Greek salads all the time? Because I could probably do that. Uh, uh, not so much, but mm. part of it. So Mediterranean is eating mostly plant foods, although it does include um, fish is kind of their primary source of protein. It does include chicken and eggs, but not as much, and very little red meat. So a lot of plants, a lot of olive oil. They would use olive oil versus butter and um yeah, so fish is a good is a big part of that diet. And just to mention, if if people are out there shopping for fish, you want to make sure you're getting wild caught versus those farm raised varieties. Sure, sure. Just want to and, throw that in there. And in most grocery stores and supermarkets or wherever you may shop, they do have they do have that 
on the on the fish that it mm-hmm. is wild caught versus farm raised yes. right yes i mean should you just stay away from all farm raised fish pretty much yes okay that's what i thought um and then Plant-based. oh w- w- one other question you, you did mention butter um when it comes to cooking i mean you mentioned olive oil is always a good option coconut oil being a good option is butter okay or you know it should i mean is is margarine a dirty word these days or where do you come off on butter versus margarine versus some of these other oils for cooking yeah and for cooking so first and foremost when you're heating oils you want to be sure you're heating the right oils different oils have different heat points so coconut oil avocado oil have a higher heat point than olive oil I recommend that people don't heat their olive oil. Okay. Because it breaks down, it oxidizes, and it goes rancid. So use your olive oil for dipping, for salad dressing, that kind of thing. And butter is high heat as well, so you can cook with butter. I always say go for the real thing. Uh, Grass-fed butter, meaning cows that ate grass, so you're getting those healthy fats, those omega-3s. Margarine, I'm not a fan of. I'm not a fan of anything processed or um, kind of made to substitute the real thing. Sure. And I guess all those products came out, you know, back in the 80s as they were lower in fat. And so that's why they were good for you. But they were just full of chemicals instead. Yeah, just butter being... Just keep it simple. Okay. Yeah, but get it from a good source. But, I mean, and this is good information. Like, I mean, I think, at least at our house, we use olive oil to put in a frying pan to cook a piece of chicken on a pretty regular basis. But you're saying that's not the right choice. You should be using coconut oil or avocado oil. Yeah, or butter. Or butter. Those are all high I'll, heat. I'll go with butter. That sounds good. Okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> let's oh, intermittent fasting. Intermittent fasting. Ah. I've done this. Yes, um, you have. And uh, <laughs> this is uh, becoming very, very popular. You hear a lot of people talking about it. Um, is, is this just a calorie restriction or do you believe there's some actual health benefits to depriving your body of food for long periods of time, um, regularly, um, once a year, uh, every day? Tell us a little bit about the whole fasting phenomenon. So intermittent fasting is a hot topic now. Everybody hears about it. Um, let me sort of break it down and clarify it. Um, Basically, fasting, we're fasting when we're sleeping, right? That could be, you know, eight hours of fasting. Where they're talking about intermittent fasting is taking longer breaks between when you're eating and you're not eating. Now, years ago, we, I think we were kind of doing this anyway. We were having dinner, <laughs> sleeping, having breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Having breaks between those meals is considered fasting. There's different varieties. So if you want to take it to the next level, you can go the 16-8 fast. What that means is you're fasting for 16 hours. So in other words, let's say you're between dinner and the time you eat breakfast, you stretch that to 16 hours. Okay. And then that remaining eight hours is the window of time where you're allowing yourself to eat. Now, that specific way of eating does not specify what you're eating, how much you're eating. You know, you can take it a step further on your own, but all that is is it's it's also called time-restricted eating. Sure. Um, so benefit, first of all, let me just say if you're diabetic, this is not good, <laughs> good for you because you have to manage a You've steady manage level of blood sugar. Of blood sugar. You're right. not going to be, it is a little tricky in that way. 
um, it, I find that it helps a lot of people that find that they're late night eaters, late night snackers, because if they're kind of restricted to a certain window of time for eating, they tend to, to stick with that. If, as long as you're not saying, so some people do better with time restriction versus food, you know, what can I eat? What can't I eat? But if late night eating is, is your big problem, then try to cut it off at a certain time and not necessarily worry about what you're eating yet. You know, that can be revised later, but first getting in the habit of not snacking all the time late at night. But yeah, it has shown to, to be beneficial. I believe when you're not eating and you're not digesting constantly your body has time for cell repair and hormone regulation you need to give your body a rest and and that would have some um we talked about primal earlier that would have some evolutionary uh it would correspond to some of that as well because if you think about it in terms of our hunter-gatherer ancestors they didn't eat three square square meals a day they they ate when they could eat and so the body if you believe the theory the body was designed to fast for Mm -hmm. long periods of time Absolutely. We have storage. You you have storage energy in your liver and in your fat cells. And so, yes, we are absolutely designed to go without food for several hours if needed. And to wrap it all up, so if fasting is good for us um, and we can more easily fast if we're not eating a lot of sugar because we're off the insulin roller coaster, that's sort of the whole thing, right? Yeah, and if the the fasting thing, if that sounds scary to you, we're not saying you know starve yourself. If that if to you that means having breakfast at eight and having lunch at twelve or one, versus if you in the past had been having breakfast at eight, having a snack at nine thirty, nibbling something around eleven, and then having lunch, just take it you know one little step at a time. There's no clear definition of sure. fasting, you know how long and how often. Or I guess you could say, you know, today I'm going to eat at eight and try that for a week. And then I'm going to push it to nine o'clock next week. And then maybe I can go to 10 o'clock the week after that and just work your way up to a, a longer fasting window. Is that a pretty common way to do it? Yeah. If you, if you find that you're not hungry in the morning, you know, they used to say breakfast is the most important meal. Make sure you're having breakfast. Again, this is for non-diabetics. For non-diabetics. I'm <laughs> um, just then yeah if you're a breakfast skipping person that's that's okay it's now okay it's now okay. now i don't know what it's going to be in 10 years right they're always going to change yes. the recommendations <laughs> okay well great well uh, again hopefully this has been informative sarah thank you so much for coming and doing this and being uh, our pilot for the uh, atlantic wellness experience podcast uh, we'll uh, we'll see you guys next time thank you <laughs>